Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za number of visitors this morning so I feel the sudden urge to introduce myself. Um, my name is my name is Bumelelo. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Baptist and if it's your first time with us today uh, we're very glad to have you with us and we have prayed that this sermon and this service would be a blessing to you. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And greeting everyone, I feel like I need to greet all the groups, greet the 50 that's in this building, greet the 100 that's outside, greet those who are at home, may the Lord be with you all. Acts chapter 1 reads as follows, we're going to focus our attention on verses 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is God's word. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series that will occupy us for the next months, um, for the rest of this year definitely, and for a number of months into the future after that. We will conclude uh, the Second Corinthians series, most likely at the beginning of next year, uh, but our attention now will turn to the book of Acts. In 2006, Apple Inc., the maker of the iPhone, was involved in a legal battle. Uh, the BBC decided to air a special on the lawsuit. So they invited a man by the name of, listen, pay attention to this name, a man by the name of Guy Cuny, a technology writer and internet expert for an on-air interview to come to TV and, and let's interview about this lawsuit. That, that, that day that Guy Cuny was arriving at the BBC London studio for the interview happened to be the same day that another man, a man by the name of Guy Goma, uh, who was arriving at the very same London office for, an, a, for a job interview. BBC staffers, the employees at BBC, mistook Guy Goma, who's come for a job interview, for Guy Cuny, and they began putting on makeup on him and wiring him up for a micro, with a microphone in preparation for his live TV interview. While this was happening, Guy Goma thought that he was being prepared for his job interview and only realized what was happening when the supposed live interview on TV was happening. My goodness, my job interview is going to be live. 
The look on his face when the question started coming about this lawsuit, he was just blanked out and saying, what am I doing here? You can Google and find this particular funny story. But the story is a story of mistaken identity and mistaken purpose. Throughout church history, there has been much confusion as to who the church is and what she is to do. The church, in response to many enemies and different situations, has found herself sometimes participating in missions that are not hers in ways that are not Christian. This is the same today. Consider, for example, with me the past 18 months. If you ask 10 different Christians from 10 different churches this question, who is the church and what is her mission? And by what means does she accomplish her mission? I suspect that you would get 10 different answers. A year like last year brings a lot of confusion because there is pressure on many sides and people's vision for the church and Christendom in general is influenced by the outside world. It is not unique, of course, to our time. It has happened throughout church church history, especially whenever there is a lot of pressure on the church. This leaves us with this question. As the church of Jesus Christ, who are we? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? How are we to behave? Between now and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what should occupy us? Where should our energy be used? What, what are the things that we are to leave aside and leave them aside because they are not a part of our purpose? What guarantee do we have for the success of our mission? We as a church, question remains, who do we live for? And what mission do we prioritize while we're here on the world? By what means are we to achieve our purpose and that mission? In a a sense, what are the weapons of our warfare? What are the means by which we get to where we want to get to? And as we're pursuing that mission, who are our allies? Who are our friends? Who are our partners in the mission? And conversely, who are our enemies, truthfully? The church on earth has been called the church militant. In, in, in historical writings, the church has called itself the church militant. But the question remains, who are we to militate against? To answer all these questions and a whole lot more, our attention turns to the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written in large part to answer these very questions. It was written to explain the identity of the church, the origins of the church, the foundational doctrines of the church, the sanctioned behaviors of the church, the demographics of the church, the mission of the church, the tools that the church uses, the source of power that the church relies upon, and to explain the foundational hope that the church has for its success. The author of the book of Acts was the man, a man by the name of Luke, who was the missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul that we have spent so much time with recently in 2 Corinthians. He himself, Luke, was not there for the beginning of the life of the church, but he certainly was there for the advance of the church, as we will meet him himself later on in the book. 
Luke was a, a doctor by profession, but it seems that at some point the Holy Spirit led him to write the history of the origins of the Christian church. But you now might ask yourself, for what purpose did Luke write the book of Acts? Well, we see in verse 1 here in the book of Acts that the book of Acts is actually the second book in a book series, as it were. It's actually a second part of a larger book series. He does not explain in this second part why he is writing this book because he has already explained that in his prologue, his introduction to the first book, which, which we call the Gospel of Luke. So won't you turn with me there for a second to... Luke chapter 1, just two books prior. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read for you what Luke says as he begins uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 is actually the introduction to both of the books. The first book, the book of Luke, deals with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ while he was on earth up until he ascended into heaven. The second part of that same story is recorded in the book of Acts, where the Lord Jesus now organizes his church and advances her mission while he is now in heaven. And in this introduction in Luke chapter 1, we are told that Luke uses eyewitness accounts to orderly give Theophilus a history of the things that have been accomplished among the Jews. Theophilus is obviously a Christian who has already been taught Christianity. And the reason he writes Theophilus this orderly account, the reason he wants to give Theophilus and the Christians with him this orderly account of, of where the church came from and who Jesus is, is given there in verse 4. Look at verse 4, Luke chapter 1. For the, it is given for the purpose of giving Theophilus certainty, assurance, certainty about the things that Theophilus had already been taught. You see that? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, Theophilus had been taught what Christianity is. Someone, we're not told who, had introduced Theophilus to Christianity and the community where Theophilus is. And they had explained Christianity, that, that Christianity is about Jesus Christ who died and rose again, and that now all who believe will have life in Him. But Theophilus and the Christians in this community needed to have their faith fortified in this way. And why is that? Well, there are a myriad of reasons. But part of the reason is that by the time Theophilus was a believer, we're told in Acts chapter 28, verse 22, at the very end of the book, that Christianity was, quote, everywhere spoken against. That's a summary. When you get to the end of the book of Acts, the summary is that Christianity is being spoken against everywhere. There was not a shortage, even at that early on, of people 
speaking against Christianity. The Jews were reviling Christianity as an, an insurrectionist religion, right? a, a religion of revolutionaries led by zealots. At Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, we see the accusation that is brought forward that these Christians' mission is to advocate for cultural practices that are illegal for the Philippians. The Romans themselves were nervous about this new religion because they were hearing all kinds of reports as to what this religion is. So Luke decides that Theophilus and the other Christians with him, in the midst of all the noise about what Christianity is, would benefit from an orderly account that shows what Christianity truly is and what Christianity's aim truly is. Perhaps you here sitting uh, or you at home watching are a bit like Theophilus. You have heard what Christianity is. You have perhaps believed what Christianity says for a long time. But because of the noise of different opinions about as to what Christianity is, you need your faith fortified with an orderly account of the things that really happened so that you might have certainty as to what the truth really is. I don't know what you have heard people say Christianity is all about. You might have heard that Christianity is just really a cult. Uh, where certain people exploit you for your money to control your life. The book of Acts will help you to understand the truth of the matter. Perhaps you have heard that Christianity is a religion for people who don't think. Perhaps you're a person who likes to think things through and wants to understand things. And you you have heard that Christianity is just a a, a religion where people just switch off their minds and and believe blindly. Believing in an archaic book. The book of Acts will help you to understand the truth of the matter. Perhaps you have heard that Christianity is a a religion of doom and ratex and petrol drinking. The book of Acts will help you understand the truth of the matter. Perhaps you have heard in our current political climate that Christianity is a religion for right-wingers. Or Christianity is only a religion for left-wingers. Or that Christianity is a religion that is the foundation for capitalism or socialism. And you're, you're, adult, you're at sea, you're not sure what, what's the truth, what, what exactly does Christianity say? The book of Acts will help you to understand the truth of the matter. Perhaps some of you have heard and have perhaps believed that Christianity is just a personal, affectionate relationship with Jesus with no necessary corporate element or a a defined specific way of living. The book of Acts will help you to understand the truth. Perhaps you have heard that Christianity is is just about religious experience. That you go to church to feel something during the worship service and then you go about your way. You go to church to get some kind of high and then you, you go about your way. Maybe you have seen people come to church on Sundays and weep and be all spiritual on Sunday morning. And then during the week, they're exactly like everybody else. And you felt a bit of a disconnect. This doesn't seem to be genuine. What is this experience that you had on Sunday that is not changing you during the week? The book of Acts will help you to understand the truth of the matter. Our prayer is that as we study this book together... Our faith will be fortified and strengthened along with Theophilus as we learn again in orderly detail 
about the religion of Jesus Christ. It is not any of these things that we have heard. Not any of these things that I have listed. It is about the man Jesus Christ. Now, with that introduction out of the way of the book, I want us to now get to our attention for this morning. In Acts chapter 1, we saw in verses 1 to 3, where, Paul, where Luke gives us a summary of the gospel of Luke. I don't know if you saw that. Come back with me to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to make you move around a bit today. In the first book, he says, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What Luke is doing here is giving a summary of the first book, the Gospel of Luke. And the focus of the Gospel of Luke, by Luke's own summary here in verses 1 to 3, is Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke is focused on explaining the identity, the work, and teaching of Christ Jesus. And you see, dear friends, that's where it all begins. For us to understand Christianity, we must understand Christ. Are you with me? We must know who Christ is. We must know what His work is. We must know what His mission is. It is true at the surface that apart from Jesus Christ, Christianity doesn't exist. I think nobody can argue that. But it is also true, underneath that surface, that apart from Christ, Jesus Christ's mission, the church has no mission. Apart from Jesus Christ's authority, the church has no basis by which to function and no hope for the success of their mission. So, what we're going to do this morning, before we start going through the book of Acts uh, together and learning more about the mission of the church, we're going to pause here on Luke's summary of the first book and we're going to focus our attention to answer this question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ truly? If you go on, on the internet to search, who is Jesus Christ? Or perhaps if you go to your iPhone and you ask it, Hey Siri, who is Jesus? You will get a myriad of answers. Some links that show up when you ask that question on the internet question whether or not Jesus Christ existed. Some links suggest that he was a, a Jewish zealot who was like other Jewish, other Jewish zealots trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Some links debate whether or not he was truly God or just a man. And it's interesting, a lot of links on the internet that show up when you ask that question are occupied about arguing whether or not Jesus was white or black. In all of this confusion, Luke gives us clarity. If I could somehow hack into Google, I would hack into it so that if anybody searched the question, who is Jesus, it would link them to the Gospel of Luke. Equally, if I was able to hack into the iPhone or to the iOS, and if somebody said, hey Siri, who is Jesus? I would link them to the Gospel of Luke. This is because Luke gives us a clearly documented account that answers the question it's in its entirety. Luke's account stands up to the best historical accounts. It is full of dates, real places, and historical figures. 
It is a historical document that stands up to the most rigorous scrutiny. If anyone believes that Christianity is based on a myth, please tell them to go sit down with the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is historical and is, it has documentable and provable facts. Now, Luke designs the Gospel of Luke with three clear sections. The first section from chapter 1 until the end of chapter 9 deals with the identity of Jesus Christ. The second section of the Gospel of Luke from around chapter 9 at the end to chapter 19 deals with Jesus' teaching regarding the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the last section from chapter 19 up until 24, chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke, that section deals with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, for our purposes this morning, we will only focus our attention on the first section, on Luke chapter 1 to 9. The rest, the rest of the, the section, specifically the section that deals with Jesus' identity. As we go through the book of Acts over the next weeks and months, we will see a lot in what Jesus taught, and we will refer a lot back to chapters 9 to 19, and we will see a whole lot about Jesus' death and resurrection. Hence, we will refer a lot more in the future to chapters 19 to 24. Now, our attention now is on answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? From about chapter 1 of Luke to its climax in chapter 9, Luke puts together evidence from historical records, from the Old Testament, and from eyewitness accounts that thoroughly answers the question as to Jesus' identity. The question, is being, the, the, the question is being built up from chapter 1 till it is categorically and emphatically answered in chapter 9 when Jesus point-blank asks the question of his disciples and Peter famously answers. And right after that, as if to, to, to emphasize the answer that Peter has given, Moses and Elijah as witnesses show up uh, in the transfiguration with Jesus to confirm Peter's declaration. The answer is not as simple as a word, though, because from chapter 1 until chapter 9, we see facets, different facets of Jesus' identity. And I want to organize them for you under three headings. The first heading. So we have three headings as to, to answer this question, who is Jesus? And the first heading is this. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus Christ is emphatically the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. After the establishment of the Jewish nation by God, God was always hinting at a coming one who will rule the world and bring an end to the suffering of his people. The Jews, little by little, were getting more information about this person. As prophecy after prophecy comes, the hope of the Israelite nation grows as his identity becomes clearer and clearer. And not only does his identity become clearer and clearer, but also his work that he will do becomes clearer and clearer. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, Jacob prophesies an unending kingdom for his fourth son, Judah. Thus the Jews knew that the Messiah, the king of, at the end of time, will come through the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 told the Jews that he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. But not through just any of Jesse's sons, 
but through David, and thus he will be David's successor. In Isaiah 9, we're told this. They were also told in Isaiah 9 that he will be called the mighty God. David himself in Psalm 45 says the Messiah, the King, is God. In Psalm 45 verse 6. And yet the King worships God. In Psalm 45 and verse 7. In Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 to 6. We're told that this branch of David is the Lord our righteousness. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 7 that the virgin's son shall be called God with us. The Jews are told in the final book of prophecy of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, that before this Lord comes, before this Messiah comes, his messenger Elijah will come first. So all of these pieces of information that I've just relayed to you that, that, point, that are the Jewish expectation of when the Messiah will come, how it will come, which house will we be a part of, who will come first, how will we know that he's actually here. All of these pieces of information Luke gathers together in an orderly fashion and maps them out and points them and shows that they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Luke begins by showing us the messenger, John the Baptist, as the one who prepares the way for the Messiah and baptizing people and proclaiming the righteousness of God. And when people flat out ask him in Luke chapter 3, are you the Messiah? He proclaims, no, I'm not. There's one who is coming. And the implication is that he's pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ when he baptized him. Luke not only shows us that, but he shows us the virgin and the virgin birth that we were expecting from Isaiah chapter 7. That this one will come through, the vir- through a virgin's womb. But not only does he show us those pieces of information, he also shows many witnesses who are contemporary at the time of Jesus that testify that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Zechariah, for example, the father of John the Baptist, prophesies that John is the one who prepares the way for Christ. The angels sing as Jesus is born. They say, here's the salvation of God. Glory be to God in the highest. Simeon, a a holy man in Israel, full of the Holy Spirit, at at the dedication of Christ at the temple, declares, after he sees Jesus, he declares that he has seen the salvation of Israel. We see his genealogy. And we see that by genealogy, Jesus is the son of Solomon, the son of David, the son of Judah, all three whose kingdoms were were prophesied to be unending. And Jesus himself testifies as to who he is when he begins his ministry by opening up Isaiah 61 at the synagogue, a chapter that is a a keystone prophecy about the Messiah, that, that he is anointed by the Lord, that he is to bring good news to the poor and liberty to the oppressed. He reads this chapter, Jesus does, stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth. He reads chapter 61 of Isaiah and then he sits down and says, it is fulfilled in your hearing. And as if to prove that it is now fulfilled in their hearing, he goes out around Galilee, giving sight to the blind, healing lepers, giving liberty to those oppressed by demons and of course proclaiming the good news. These are facts that actually happened. And Luke puts them in front of us in such a way that anyone who reads them with understanding can see that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah. The one whose kingdom was prophesied to rule forever. 
But don't get lost in all these details. I've given you a whole bunch of details just now. Don't get lost in them. Remember this, that Theophilus is reading the Gospel of Luke and reading the book of Acts at the time when the Jews are rejecting Jesus. Yes, a lot of them indeed, a lot of Jews had become Christians, but by and large the Jewish nation had rejected Jesus. Jesus was rejected in his own town. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders and he was rejected by the whole nation when they gave him up to be killed. And throughout as his apostles are preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ, the leaders and the nation are rejecting him. So then the question becomes why? Why? Why are they rejecting him? If the evidence of Jesus being the Messiah is so overwhelming, why did the Jews reject him? Why did the nation that have been expecting these things and Jesus ticks all of the boxes with, with miracles on top, why is it that they rejected him? Well, this is where it becomes important for us because Luke shows us in the Gospel of Luke different people rejecting Jesus for different reasons. There's not really one answer to that. There's many reasons. Come with me for a second to Luke chapter 4 from around verse 13. His hometown, in Luke, I just want to show you this. His hometown rejects the Lord Jesus. After, after, after he has read the text, you see there verse, verse 18 to 19, he's reading Isaiah 61. He rolls up the scroll in verse 20 and he gives it back and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled. They seemed happy with him for a moment. You see in verse 22. They, 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 they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, but is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, now listen to this, Jesus is telling us, Jesus told, told them this, look at what happens. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, filled with hot anger. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. You talk about not being loved in your own hometown. You see, they didn't, his hometown, Nazareth, rejects Jesus because he included Gentiles as those who will receive the message. They didn't just reject him, you see, in his hometown. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Why? Why did they try to kill him? Because he didn't flatter them. He told them that they were not so special and that God will include the outcasts, the Gentiles, at their expense. And they didn't like it, and they wanted him dead. 
Forget all the information that's clear that this is the Messiah. We want you dead and gone because you don't flatter us. You're telling us that, you, that God is going to bring in dirty and filthy Gentiles into his, among his people. Here's the application for us. There is a danger that you and I need to be aware of. Do we want a Jesus of our own making? Do we want a Jesus who sanctions and sanctifies our cultures and our attitudes? Or do we want the biblical Jesus who will confront us and tell us that we're not so special, that we are in need of mercy like everybody else? Which Jesus are you after? Are you after the one who pats you on the back and tells you that everything that you and your people do is right? Or do you want the real one who tells you that you need mercy like everyone else? They were happy with Jesus at first until he challenged them. Until he exposed their hearts. And they didn't just want to get rid of him, they wanted him dead. That's one group that, that rejects Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, the scribes and Pharisees are angry at him because he claims that he can forgive sins. And they get even angrier with him later on in Luke chapter 5 when he eats with sinners. Look with me in Luke chapter 5. They, they start to, the, the, the Jewish leaders start to grumble uh, when, he, when he proclaims that he can, he, can, um, he can forgive sins. You see that in verse 21, Luke chapter 5, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answers them. And I'm going to come back to that. But they get angry at him because of what he claims he can do. And their anger at him increases when he goes out to eat with the tax collector and his friends. Look, jump down um, to uh, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They, they're angry at him because he's doing things in a way that they do not like. Their hatred of him, of course, would reach a climax in chapter 11 when he calls them out for their love of pride and praise by others. And then they sit down, and near the end of chapter 11, they sit down and decide that this man needs to be killed. This man needs to be killed by one way or another. Here's the danger for us. Here's something for us to think about. The danger here is of rejecting Jesus because of who He is. And because of what He claims He is. Are you offended when Jesus says He is the only way? Are you so committed to pluralistic thinking that you do not like Jesus' claims to absolute truth? By that I mean, by His claim, that He is the absolute truth. That He is the one. He is the one to the Father. Do you find that offensive? Does that touch against your 21st century sensibilities? There's no other Jesus for you to find. He is the, he is the one. What He says is the truth. And you have to come to Him for life or you will not have life. Do not be offended at Jesus because of who He is. 
Are you offended when Jesus claims deity? When he, when he accepts worship from men and he makes it clear that he is God incarnate. Do you find that offensive? Do you find that illogical? And then you, are you rejecting him because of that particular aspect of his ministry? Otherwise you like everything else. I don't want you to be confused. If you reject the biblical Jesus, there's no other Jesus for you to have. You can't have other parts of him. Jesus is not a buffet. You don't pick the bacon because it's so nice and then you leave the Brussels sprouts. If, if you are to come to Christ's meal, you have everything. There's no picking and choosing. Either reject him completely and be clear that you've rejected him or accept him as he says he is. Here's a third, here's a third example of people re someone rejecting Jesus. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we have another man rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ for a different reason, different from these others. You've heard the story, I'm sure, of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, from verse 18, Jesus, I've kept the... Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. And he says, I've kept the law. And then Jesus looks at him and we're told in Mark that he looked at him and loved him. And then he says, you have one thing that you lack. Sell all of your possessions. This is a rich man, by okay, He's not just asking him to, you know, to stop his Netflix subscription. He's telling him to sell everything. Sell all of your possessions. Give to the peer, to the poor, and then follow me. Prize me above your earthly possessions. Prize me above everything. Follow me. Come to me. And the young man with his heart broken, he clenches his fist, he beats his chest and he goes away and he says, clearly saying that he can't do it. You see there, he rejects Jesus because in his heart, his earthly possessions have become supreme. Is Jesus everything? Do you find it offensive when Jesus says, you are to hate even your own life? Or you're not worthy to be my disciple. Is Jesus to be everything to you? Do, you? do you see it? Do you understand? Do you see why Jesus is to be everything? Or do you choose to have him when he also allows you to have other things? Are you so enamored by the gifts that Jesus gives you that you love them more than him? See, Jesus Christ says this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the one and you are to love me above everything. You cannot be my disciple if you, do not, if you love something else above me. Jesus is extremely jealous. He is jealous in a biblical sense that if you are to come to him, if he is to save you, if he is to be your king and master, he is to have all of your hearts. He is to have your heart, your love, your emotions, your thinking capacity, your physical energy, all of your resources. He is to have it all or he will have none of it. See, when, you come, when you're being invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're coming to him completely and you are to lay everything at his feet. But this rich young man could not, could not prize Jesus above his earthly possessions and he rejected him. Let me tell you, there's another story in Luke that shows the foolishness of prizing earthly possessions over Jesus. 
The story is told of this rich man who, who keeps laying up and laying up and laying up. And then, on the, and then on the day that he dies, God says to him, you are a fool. You are not rich towards me. You are rich on earth. When you die, what's to happen to your possessions? What shall it, what shall it benefit you to gain the whole earth and lose your soul? Come to the Lord Jesus Christ to find life and complete life. Don't, don't let these things distract you. Don't let all these other things that look shiny distract you from the main prize. The main prize, the only golden prize, the only gold medal that is worth striving toward, the worth coming to, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a great treasure in the field. That the man who finds this treasure sells everything in order that he might gain it. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and do not reject him for useless things like possessions and the earth. In fact, he says he will give you the earth. Those who belong to him will be given the earth. The earth is theirs. They will inherit it. They will live forever. Why would you choose something that is temporary and leave the thing that is eternal? The summary lesson here from the Jews' rejection of Jesus is this. Do not believe in a Jesus of your own making. Do not let, listen to me, do not let your culture's definition of a hero affect your view of who Jesus is or who Jesus should be. Christ is all his own. Do not try and put Jesus in some kind of a box that fits what you want him to. It's amazing to see how many different subcultures and different movements and different activists can all co-opt Jesus to be the champion of their cause. Every, if you just look, everybody claims Jesus is the champion of their cause. Mahatma Gandhi can say Jesus is the champion of his cause. Islam says Jesus is the champion of their cause. Those who are on the right say Jesus is the champion of their cause. Those who are on the left say Jesus is the champion of their cause. Of their cause. No wonder there is wholesale confusion as to who Jesus is because everybody is pulling in different directions and claiming that Jesus is the champion for their cause. Do not let, do not let what you want to be define in your mind what Jesus should be. That's what the Jews were doing. They wanted a Messiah in a particular way. And you and I can be guilty of doing the same thing. You see, it is one thing, dear friends, to say that Jesus said this and say that Jesus said that in a discussion. But it is a completely thing to say that because Jesus said this, he is the champion of my cause. No, no, no. Hold on. Jesus is the champion of his own cause. Jesus is the champion of his own cause. He has his own kingdom, his own people, his own eternal future. He's, he's championing his own cause. You can't co-opt him to yours. Other people who love Jesus but pay absolutely no attention to him are religious pluralists. Religious pluralists love Jesus because of, of his words and how his words sound can be taken in, in different contexts to mean different things. For example, in a recent survey, 64% of Christians agreed that Jesus accepts the worship of all religions. 64% of Christians believe that. What kind of nonsense is this? Jesus Christ came and said, I am the way and I am the way alone. 
And when you're going to come and say no, Jesus actually said that don't judge other people. What does that have to do with anything? We're talking about the way to God. Hold on on the judging. The way to God is Christ Jesus. You can't now come and take that and put that in there out of context to say that Jesus means that everybody can come to him throughout every means. See, um, that is why the, the world has created a kind of a subcategory to which to, to, by which to refer to Jesus, which is a, just a, a good teacher, a great teacher, one whose moralism is, is, is wonderful for society to follow. But let me encourage you, Jesus Christ is not that, dear friends. There is much more to Jesus Christ, and he is not that. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited King of the Jews, who was to rule the earth and existence forevermore. That's who he is. But his identity doesn't end there. There are two more categories I want to give you. First, he's the Jewish Messiah. Second, Luke shows us something else. Luke shows us that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. In Luke chapter 3, from, rather, from chapter 3 into chapter 4, Luke, Luke does an impress, a very impressive piece of writing when he links together three pieces of information that to you and I seem completely disconnected, but if you're to take a moment, you will see that they should mean the world to you and me. These three pieces of information that Luke puts together orderly show something that means the world to you and me. So it starts in Luke chapter in verse 22 of chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized. See what happens there in verse 23 in chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized. Uh, well, let me start in verse 21 of chapter 3. When, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Without giving us commentary, Luke, you see, notice, Luke doesn't give us any commentary as to who this voice is. And what this phrase, you are my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased, and what that phrase means even in context. But rather Luke immediately in verse 23 starts telling us about Jesus' genealogy. Look at this. Verse 23, now Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, and then he goes on. And you're like, hold on, Luke. Wait a second, I'm still trying to understand what it meant when, you, when I was told that this is, this is someone's beloved son in whom this someone is well pleased. And while we're trying to understand that a little bit more, <clears throat> you actually see the, 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 how the, the key that unlocks that when you follow the genealogy all the way to the top. Right at the end of verse 38, the genealogy says, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke links the genealogy to the voice and tells us that this is God's voice. And Jesus is God's son in the way that Adam is God's son. And while we're trying to understand Luke a little bit more, we're trying to make sense of this. Okay, you've just given me this genealogy. Luke moves immediately into, into the temptation of Jesus Christ in chapter 4. 
And you think, what, what, what does this have to do with anything? In this temptation, Jesus Christ is tempted three times. And three times he stands. Who's the last person that you know who was tempted by the devil and, fall flat, and fell flat on his face? Adam. Adam. So this, these three pieces of information coming together show us clearly this. That this is not just the savior of Israel. This is not just the savior of the Jewish nation. This is the savior of Adam's children. Because this one, this Adam, this son of God, in the same way that Adam is the son of God, this son of God stood where the first Adam fell. This son of God has a righteousness that the first Adam did not have. This son of God has a righteousness that is alive and living when the children of Adam currently do not have that righteousness. You see, Adam and all his children, including you and me, have failed when Satan tempts. But this one here, Jesus Christ, is the only one who stood against the test of Satan and came out on the other side, righteous by his own strength. Righteous by his own virtue. From within him, there is a righteousness that stands that cannot be tempted with the shiny things of earth that you and I fall over every day. The scripture says clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man, woman and child descended from Adam has regrets, has failures and has lived primarily in rebellion toward God. If I were to do a survey in this room and outside to find out who has sinned, what do you think the percentage would be? 100%. All of, all of, all of us, Adam's children, have sinned. We have fallen short. All of us, including the cute toddlers. All of us have sinned. But here we are, but here we have, and we see the second Adam, the Son of God, standing firm on God's word when you and I have failed. All the children of the first Adam then should find their hope in this one, the second Adam. This is not just the Jewish Savior, this is the Savior for you and me. Are you in need of righteousness, son of Adam? Are you in need of a living righteousness, dear daughter of Adam? Are you aware and sometimes despondent and tired of your own continual failing in front of the test, continual capitulation to sin? Your hope should move from everything else to this one, the son of Adam who stood the test. Your hope for righteousness should be a righteousness that is not your own, but His. A righteousness that is in Him. Because He's the only one who stood the test of Satan. His righteousness is available to all who believe. And finally, really quickly, I want us to come close to the end here. First, we saw that He is the Jewish Messiah. Second, we've seen that He is the second Adam, and thereby He's the Savior of the entire human race. And now thirdly, we see a clear piece of information throughout. In these first nine chapters of Luke, the third piece of information about, Christ, about Christ's identity is that He is the one who has come to forgive 
sins. He is the one who has come to forgive sins. If you want to understand the identity of Jesus Christ and his mission, one of the most foundational chapters in the Bible for you to go to is Luke chapter 5. Jesus' mission is spelled out in clear and categoric terms. He had not come to overthrow the Romans. He he had not come to push political agendas or to relieve socio-economic stress. He came to call disciples, to make them clean, and to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. All the stories in in Luke chapter 5, in their order, build a wonderful and clear narrative. And let me quickly just try and, and take you through them. The first story in Luke chapter 5 ends with Jesus telling Peter to not be afraid as he is standing before the Holy One. Now, here's the thing that just happened. I'm not going to read it. It's going to take a long time. But that first story ending in verse 11. Basically, this is what happened. Jesus has has just done a miracle where Peter and them were told to cast their net on the one side. And they had been trying to catch fish for a whole night. And they couldn't catch any. And then Jesus comes and says, get it on this one side. And they, ca- and they catch the fish and their boats start to capsize. And then Peter realizes, hold on. The one in front of me is not a normal man. The one in front of me is a holy man. This is a man who is close to God in a way that I can't, I can't explain. And then he comes to Jesus and he throws himself by his face on the ground. And he says to Jesus, get away from me for I am a sinful man. But what is Jesus' response? Does Jesus tell him, no, you're not a sinful man, it's fine, stand up. No. Does Jesus tell him, no, I'm not a holy man, so there's no need for you to be worried in front of me. No, he doesn't say that. What does he tell him? He tells him to not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid. Okay, but how does this solve the problem? I'm still sinful. Peter is still sinful. Jesus is still holy. How can I not be afraid in your presence? The second narrative explains and gives us more clarity. Look at the second narrative in verse 12. There was a leper. This is a, a, a story of a leper that nobody wants to touch. Everybody is staying away from this leper. Everybody is trying to avoid this leper. And immediately this, this leper is crying out that if you will. The question there is asked by this leper to Jesus in verse, uh, in verse, in verse 12. At the end of verse 12 he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me king. And Jesus' answer is, I will be clean. But notice, he doesn't just say, I will be clean. But look at what Jesus does. He stretches out his hand in verse 13. He stretches out his hand and touches him. Hold on. What's going on here? People stay away from lepers. Why? Because lepers make you unclean. So you don't touch them. You don't come near them. You definitely don't touch them because they're, they're, they're Defilement will make you defiled. But Jesus touches him and a beautiful thing happens. Instead of the dirt that is on the leper coming to Jesus, Jesus' cleanliness, Jesus' purity, Jesus' holiness cleanses him. Do you see this? Jesus is willing to save sinners. So he comes to them, tells them to not have prayed, and he touches them and makes them clean. Instead of you being afraid, God is going to destroy me. Instead, now God comes and cleanses you. 
But the story doesn't end there. In the next story, where Jesus is healing a paralytic, I'm sure you've heard the story where they open up a thing at the top. Some of some of friends of a, a guy open up a thing at the top. He's lowered down, and they come there and they and they want Jesus to heal their friend. And Jesus says, Jesus looks at the faith, and he says, because of your faith, because of their faith, that looks, he sees their faith of them, the, the man and the friends, because of what they've just done. He says, wow, you guys really trust me. Because of your faith in me, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees grumble, like we saw earlier. They start grumbling. What? How? You, can't, you can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus answers them and says, listen, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins, then he tells them to stand up and walk. Notice, the friends brought the, fr- the, brought the, the, the paralytic so that he can be healed physically. Jesus heals his biggest problem. He forgives his sins. And then because everybody is doubting, nobody can see that his sins are forgiven. It's not like we're all going around with a little video thing on top of our heads that says, so many sins, so many sins you still have, so many are forgiven. It's not like we have that digital thing on top of our heads like that. We don't. So nobody can see this. And so Jesus says, okay, so that I can prove to you that I am able to forgive sins. He tells this man, stand up and walk. And the man stands up and walk. That gives us a clear identity and a clear purpose of all the miracles. The miracles are there so that the Jews would believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah who is able to forgive sins. When you see Jesus performing miracles, it is not for fun. It is not for a spectacle unlike today. It is not to gain more followers. It is to prove to them that He is able to do what He says He can. That is, He can heal you of your spiritual leprosy. And then if you're still now, and then the last story, real quick. When the Pharisees taunt him because he is eating with sinners, there when he's gone to his friend Levi's house, he answers them with a very famous statement that I'm sure you have heard. He says, though, in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, you might think, okay, Jesus might, uh, Jesus might be willing to heal me of my spiritual sickness. Jesus might be able to heal me of my spiritual sickness. But maybe it doesn't fit into his plans. You know, you, you, sometimes you, you, you might want somebody to help you. And someone says, look, I'm willing to help you. I'm actually able to help you. But right now, my purpose is to do something else. Jesus makes it very clear the purpose for why he came. He's willing to do it. He's able to do it, and it is within His purpose to do it. So dear, dear friend, if you're here this morning, there's a, a simple and very clear implication and application for you. Jesus does not need anything from you. He has come to give you something. Jesus does not need your money, your skills, your time. None of those things have trade value with Christ. It's not like we can come and barter. Okay, Jesus, you come with the forgiveness of sins and I'll come with this. No. Instead, Jesus calls you to repent and, trust, and place the full trust and weight of your life in Him. Are you with me? You, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and He's the one who gives you freedom from sin. He cleanses you and then He, st- he changes you little by little, little into His own image. An image that is righteous and glorious. And finally, you will achieve it at the end 
when you return with him back onto the earth looking like him shining and blazing in glory see Jesus has not come to barter with you to try and get stuff out of you try to exploit you try to get your money try to get to abuse you in some way but instead he has come to give you life do not reject this offer of free gift do not reject it this is a good gift it's the best gift I you know I could give you my broken phone here it's not as good as a gift as this give you my 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 you know my broken car it's not as good a gift as this somebody can come here and give you a Ferrari it's not as good a gift as this to have your sins completely forgiven before him but there's a second implication for us as we end and this is the implication for us as a church dear heritage Baptist this is our mission this too is our mission we find our mission in his mission We're not here to play political games. We're not here to play economic games. We're not here to play cultural games. We're here to save sinners because Christ has saved us. We exist to call out the message to others and say, hey, we have found life. Come with us. I will take a lot of nonsense from a lot of people just as long as I can say to them, come to Christ. My life and your life is to be forgetful of ourselves. To forget ourselves. Don't don't be so offended so quickly all the time. It's not so much about you. It's about Christ. Take a few offenses so that you can take someone to Christ. Why do you care so much about you and your name and your positions and all that you believe in and all of this? Why does it matter so much? When men and women are dying, not knowing Jesus Christ. Our mission is the same as his mission. Like the Apostle Paul, we will be Gentiles to Gentiles and Jews to Jews so that by His mercy and grace, we might somehow save some. May God help us to do that. Let's pray.